Well, good morning and uh, happy Mother's Day. Just watching that kind of made me um, anxious, all that work. It's like I, it's just a lot of work being a mother. And um, my mom passed away about 23 years ago. And so celebrate your mother while she's alive. When I think of my mother, um, one of the main memories that comes to my mind was her sense of humor. In fact, my sense of humor comes from her, but she used to play the piano at our church and and Sunday evenings, I'd sit in the front row and make faces at her while she was playing the piano. And uh, the, the goal was to see if we could get her laughing. Um, and she never spanked us for that. Anyway, why don't we pray before we jump into our subject this morning. Father, we, we do celebrate uh, the mothers here. We thank you for just the work that they do. Um, really just to understand a mother's love is so amazing, a really a reflection of your love. And Lord, as we look at your word now, we ask you to speak to us through our time together. We just want to hear from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in high school, my twin brother and I used to try to earn money by doing summer yard work for the neighbors. And so we'd go from house to house, we'd cut grass and weed whack and that kind of thing. And one of our neighbors owned his own company. He was the president of a manufacturing company and he loved the work we did on his lawn and so he asked if we'd like to work at his company. And we said yes. My twin brother ended up working at that company for many, many years and advanced in in leadership at that company. I ended up going to Bible college and so I only worked during the summers. And so each summer, my job at this company was a little bit different. One of the jobs they hired me to do was maintenance. That was a mistake. (laughs) I just was, I just horrible at, at fixing things, and yet that's what my job entailed. And so I remember, for example, one project I had where I was to install a water faucet. I'd really never worked with anything like that. Now, I did have a boss that kind of oversaw what I was doing, but... I remember I I got the thing in and I was kind of excited about it except that I glued the pipe that's used for drainage at a bad angle. It's supposed to slant. And I had it kind of running uh, parallel with the floor and so nobody really would notice it and, and the faucet would work okay but I knew in time that water and whatever would settle in that pipe. But that's what you get if you hire someone like me to do plumbing. I've shared before the time that I almost killed my boss. We were doing an electric project. I think he was replacing fluorescent lights, and I was at the breaker box. He'd say, turn breaker one on. Okay, turn breaker two on. Yes, turn three off. Turn one off. Turn four on. I'm there just going switches, and all of a sudden I hear this just piercing scream. He he had touched a live wire, threw him off the ladder. He was so mad at me. Now, my brother worked for a different supervisor, and he heard the guy yell at me, and he yelled at my boss. He said, it's your fault, not Tim's. You forgot which breakers were on and which were off. But as I've been thinking about this story, I'm thinking, it probably wasn't the boss's fault. It's what you get when you hire a a team to do something who is incompetent. It's okay to hire a team to do it, but if you don't know what you're doing, maintenance is just not my thing. Now, today we're going to continue our series titled Balance. 
And I want to talk today about the idea that in order for us to have balance in our lives, I think we need to identify how God has made us and identify what God wants us to be doing. We need to learn to be able to say yes to the right things and no to the wrong things or else we'll find we don't have the time for the things that really matter. Now, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you know this series is about getting balance in our lives. The first week of the series, I talked about setting aside a Sabbath type of day. And I mean Sabbath type of day because I'm convinced that we're not obligated to set aside the Sabbath day anymore. I think that was part of the Old Testament law. I don't think we have to do it. And yet I do believe that this idea of a Sabbath is something God built within all of creation. All of creation has its evenings and mornings and it's got its weeks and it's got its months. But you remember how God, after six days of creating all these things, it says he rested on the seventh day. And I think he was modeling that for us. Now, if you were here two weeks ago, you know that when it says God rested on the Sabbath, it does not mean he slept. God never sleeps, thankfully, because he could miss something. No, it means he stopped his work, he stopped his labor. God worked six days and then he stopped his labor. He did no work on the seventh day. And I'm suggesting that you get that as part of your life routine, your rhythm. My wife and I have been doing that for the last uh, two or three years and it's made a huge difference. Boy, that, uh, that day comes, that Sabbath day, and we just relax and enjoy life. Because life is not supposed to be about work, 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 work. It's supposed to be actually enjoyable. That might surprise some of you. And then last week, I was in Columbus, Ohio for a wedding and a graduation, and um, Kevin talked about getting margin in our day. He raised some questions like, do you feel the need to breathe? Or do you have permission? Give yourself permission to stop. Do you have margins in your life? Do you have space to even think? And oftentimes there's, there's no time within our day to just reflect on what am I doing and what is life about and what should I be doing. We're just carried along by our schedule. But I want to suggest that's not the best approach. Now, Kevin's takeaway was we need to make room in our day to make the most of our lives. We need to have some margins in our life or else you won't be joyful. And someone will come along with some need or something and you'll shut them down because you don't have time to even help somebody. That's how our lives are these days. We go and we go and we go. But one of the questions that I know has come up as a result of talking about a Sabbath day or talking about having a more balanced day, work day, is, is it practical? Is it even possible? Some people have come up to me and they said, how on earth can you spend a full day just doing nothing? You know, they examine their lives and they realize it just is, it seems like an impossible thing to do. Well, that's, that's what I want to address here today. My takeaway this morning is this, that no is the new yes. And when I say no, I mean K-N-O-W. K-N-O-W, if we know certain things about ourselves and we know certain things about what God has to say, I think it gives us permission to say yes to the right things. We just have to have this sense of direction in our lives. What is God's purpose for us? And then we begin to live in such a way that certain things line up and certain things don't. We begin saying yes to the things that, that contribute to where we feel God's leading us and we say no to those things that are getting in the way. 
Now, I want to raise some questions here, or look at three references here this morning. And I want to ask you the question, what do the three references have in common? I want to lay the foundation for this idea that if you know how God has made you and you know what God's will is, that you'll have a better yes. But I want to look at three verses, and I, or three references, and I want you to think in your mind, what do they all have in common? The first one is this, it's Genesis 2 and verse 2. We read, by the seventh day God completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Okay, I referred to this already. By the seventh day God completed his work that he had done, and he rested. Second reference has to do with John the Baptist. It's found in Acts chapter 13 and verse 25. Then as John was completing his life's work, he said, who do you think I am? I'm not the one. He's saying I'm not the Messiah. But look, someone is coming after me and I'm not worthy to untie the sandals on his feet. Begins by saying, then as John was completing his life's work, he approached the crowd that was gathered, who do you say I am? Who do you think I am? I'm not the Messiah. No, he's infinitely greater than I am. I'm not even worthy to touch his shoelaces. And then the third reference is some words by Jesus as he was in the Garden of Gethsemane just before he was arrested. John 17, 4 and 5. I've glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. Once again, I glorified you on this earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, glorify me again like, like the glory I used to enjoy before any of creation. Now, what is the idea that's repeated in all three of these references, plus others that are found in the pages of the Bible? Well, there's a sense of all of these individuals knew when they were done. They knew when they were completed. Each one completed his work and knew that the work was done, it was completed. Which suggests to me that they had real clarity in terms of what they should or should not be doing. So you start with God, for example, in Genesis, the reference I just read, well, God created for six days and then at a certain point, he, he knew he'd created everything that needed to be created. Okay, I'm done now. And he rested on the seventh day, but he, he knew exactly what he wanted to create and what he needed to do and how to spend his first six days. And then John the Baptist was the same. It says as he was completing the end of his mission here, John the Baptist was given the task of doing two things. Number one is to prepare people's hearts for Jesus. He preached about repentance from sin and about the, the, the coming of the Messiah, and, and he wanted people to get right with God or be aware of their sinfulness so they'd be ready to embrace the Savior who was about to be introduced. The second thing that John the Baptist knew he was to do was introduce Jesus to the world. It was John's job to say, this is the one. This is the one, follow him. When John was done with that job, it was his purpose for living, and he knew that. He was arrested. And shortly after that, he actually lost his life as a martyr. But he knew what he was supposed to be doing with his life and with his time. And then Jesus himself, he said, I've glorified you on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, I think Jesus, in saying those words, I've completed the work you gave me to do, is including the cross in that. 
Jesus was praying, and he's basically, right before he's about to be arrested, he said, okay, God, I've, I've done everything you asked me to do. This is it. And he knew he was going to the cross, and he would die and be buried and raised again from the dead, but he knew. He had a work that he needed to complete to do. And my point is this, that all of them, plus other people in the Bible, seem to just have a clear sense in terms of this is what my reason for existence is. This is why I'm on this world. This is what God wants me to do. This is the job I need to finish to carry out his will. Now, why this matters is understanding what that is, what our purpose in life is what God created us to do or what God's will is, knowing that gives us the ability again to look at everything that comes our way and evaluate, should I say yes to this thing or should I say no to this thing? Jesus, of course, was brilliant at that. Jesus always knew the right thing to do. And it was sometimes surprising because sometimes there'd be a huge crowd and it was an opportunity for great ministry and Jesus just walked away. But think about it for a moment. You know, this idea, no, is, is the new yes. This idea that knowing what the Father had him to do, this knowledge was the thing that gave Jesus, plus in terms of walking in the Spirit, it gave him the ability to say yes to this and no to that. Because think for a moment of Jesus. He had three years to get her done. He had three years. I mean, he, he lived as a young man. You don't read anything about him except when he was just a, a teen, you know, 13. And then we read nothing about him, and then he's 30, and he's going to die in three years. So he's got three years. He had some things to get done. What did he have to get done? Well, it's, it was all about those, those disciples. Jesus understood everything I do is about these guys in the future. And that's why many times he saw the crowds, but he walked this way. He said, this is not what it's about. It's not about the crowds. If I do not get these ones up and ready to go, my mission will be a failure. And he knew that, and I think that guided a lot of the yeses and a lot of the noes that he had to, to say. But how do we know what it is for us? I want to spend just a few minutes on Ephesians 5, 15 through 17, three verses and then I'll get, I think, real practical with some questions that we could ask ourselves. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 15, we read, pay careful attention then how you walk or how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is, and don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless actions, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, that last verse doesn't look like it applies. He says, you know, don't, don't uh, live wisely, not unwisely. Understand what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk with wine because it, it leads here to reckless actions. Well, what does that have to do with anything? I think Paul's making a contrast here. That phrase, reckless actions, can be translated worthless living a worthless life. And suddenly you realize what Paul is contrasting here is a life of meaning and worth contrasted with a life that was not, where we waste our lives. See, all of us have been given the same amount of time. We all have 24 hours in a day, but there are some who go through their whole life and they just waste their life. 
Even though they've been given the same amount of time as other people, they have certain gifts and talents and abilities and strengths and other things that God gave to them generously, but they don't employ those things to carry out the good that God intended for them. They end up wasting their lives to some degree. By contrast, we're told, be careful how you live. Live wisely. A scholar by the name of Honer puts it this way, believers then are to live or walk carefully so as to be wise or skillful and thus please the Lord. The manner for this careful, precise walk is making the right use of every opportunity. Everything that comes your way, you make the right opportunity. And the reason for this careful walk is that the days are evil. Now there's one phrase that Paul uses here that I think distinguishes between whether someone lives wisely or not. Now recognize again that the verses are addressed to all of us. Paul said, don't be, don't, don't be foolish. Understand what the Lord's will is, which is the key phrase. If we understand what God's will is for our lives, then we will live wisely. If we understand what he's trying to do in and through us, if we're able to understand that, we'll begin to say yes to certain things and no to certain things. Now, I wanna get real practical with this because I think all of us do struggle with the idea, well, what is it? What, how did God make me? What, what is the yes for me? How would I know what it is God wants me to do? I won't ask you to raise your hands, but I'm sure many of you have wondered that before. I wanna make sure I live wisely. I wanna do what the Lord wants me to do. I just don't know what it is. And so I wanna get to some questions here, three questions here that I think will help us sort that out. The first one is this. How has God wired you? How has God wired you? What has God uniquely done in your life to equip you. God did not wire me for maintenance work. He also didn't wire me to be a basketball player. <laughs> I just don't have it. And sometimes, of course, we spend a lot of our lives going after the thing we can't have instead of asking the question, what, what, have you, what did you do with me? What, what have you invested in me? Now, I like using the acrostic shape, which I talk about here on occasion. I think it came from Rick Warren, but each letter of the acrostic stands for something, and it has personally been helpful in my own life to look at these five things, spelling the word shape. The S stands for your spiritual gift. Every believer in Christ has a spiritual gift or an ability. It's an enablement. It's something God gives you to serve other people. And in the pages of the New Testament, there are about 22 or 23 of these spiritual gifts. You say, well, what are some of them? Well, there are things like, some of you have the gift of mercy. Your heart just melts when you run into someone in need. You know, some of you have the gift of hospitality. The Greek word literally means a lover of strangers. Some of you are so good at that. You're so friendly. You're so welcoming. You're the kind of person that people say he never met an enemy. You know, he's someone that never met someone that wasn't a friend because immediately everyone was a friend. And some are like that. There's a gift of teaching. There's a gift of an evangelist out there, someone who's very effective at communicating the gospel. It's a gift of giving. Some of you are really generous, and God has given you both the means and the desire and the willingness to give and make a difference for the kingdom of heaven. Some of you have a gift of encouragement where you just encourage other people. Do you know what your gift is or gifts? 
Now, for those that are taking notes, the spiritual gifts in the New Testament are found in primarily four places. It's 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. Those are the four. It's 12 and 12, 4 and 4. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. It lists a bunch of spiritual gifts. And other people, by the way, can help you identify what yours is. But I believe that that spiritual gift is something that God wants to use to direct your steps, to say this is the thing that lines up with how I made you. I gave you this gift or this ability to serve in this particular way. And we begin to understand our spiritual shape. The H in the word shape is heart. What do you have a heart to do? Some of you have a heart for kids. Some of you have a heart for those who are needy, where your heart just breaks when you come across various needs. What do you have a heart for? In my case, I think I have, for most of my upbringing, had a heart for sharing my faith with other people. Ever since I had the privilege of leading a bunch of my friends in my neighborhood for Christ, I just have had a heart for people to know Jesus and to know that they're going to heaven when they die, and, and I want to tell people about it. And, and so part of what I'm about is evangelism, sharing the gospel within the context of the church. But all of us, I think, again, we have spiritual gifts, but we have a heart for something. And sometimes people think, well, the thing you have a heart for is not the thing God wants you to be doing. I've had people literally tell me this, and not just one or two. They've said, I think God wants me to be a missionary because I, I can't think of anything worse that I'd give myself to. They say, I don't, I don't want to be a missionary. Therefore, God must want me to be one. It's like God wants to point you to do the very thing you don't want to do. It's not how God usually works. Now, I have to confess that in my case, that is what he did with me. <laughs> Most of you know it's not what I wanted. I didn't want to be a pastor. You know, my dad was a pastor. I hated it. I hated it. I remember the embarrassment of the very first school I went to in the class and everyone had to say what your, what your name was and what your parents did for a living and I said, my dad's a pastor and it's like I had a third eye in my forehead. Everybody looked at me like, that's what one of those looks like, you know. <laughs> I didn't want to be a pastor, but God has a way. He, he, he got me in through the back door. He kind of changed my heart and my desire and then I began to see how he was brilliant in, in what he did. Where, where my heart suddenly lined up with what my spiritual gifts were and these other things in the word shape. The third one is obi abilities. Some of you have special abilities. You're good at music. Maybe you're good at, at numbers. Maybe you're good at, contrary to me, fixing things. What are you good at? God has given you gifts and abilities. There are things that you can do better than other people. And I think God did it that way, by the way, so we would need one another. I need what you have, you need what I have, because none of us have the whole package. The P is personality. Some of you are outgoing, some of you are more quiet, some of you are people people, some of you are project people. That usually lines in with what God wants you to do and find the experiences. God uses the experiences in your life. This is what God used in my own life. The fact that I was raised in the house of a pastor helped immensely when God finally got my attention and pointed me in this direction. But you've experienced various things. I think God, by the way, has given me all kinds of experiences so that I'll have sermon illustrations. 
Things happen all the time. It's like, that's a good story. <laughs> Can't make that one up. Do you know what your spiritual shape is? Because I think what God wants you to do is often lined up with these five things, your spiritual gift, what you have a heart for, what your abilities are, what your personality is, and the experiences God has given you. And I encourage you to evaluate your life and see what it is. What is it that you are good at? What, what is it that he would want you to do? For a short season when I moved to Morgantown, I worked at a bank for a while, and. And then I got a job selling tax-deferred annuities to teachers and professors. I was horrible at it. I was horrible. Six months, I made one sale. I think she felt sorry for me. It should have been, become part of my sales pitch. Nobody will buy from me. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a salesman. Some of you are. And you begin to identify how God has wired you I want to start writing. I believe that God's lead me in that direction to be a communicator in print, not just in writing, not just verbally. I think as we understand our shape, it'll help. A second question is this, what has God already revealed through the Bible about what we should or should not be doing? There are a lot of things that are, are listed in the pages of the Bible that, that God says, this is, this is what you should do, and these are the things that don't line up. And I think we should evaluate our lives and ask the question, are there things that we're doing or giving ourselves to that are not things that line up with what God wants, what God's will is for our lives? I mean, if you want to ask the question, what, how do we know God's will for our lives? One of the main answers is he revealed it in the pages of the Bible. And as you read, you'll see that these are things you shouldn't be giving yourself to. You shouldn't waste your life in these things over here, giving yourself to this or that or this or that. And then you'll read there are other things that God says, you know, you really should make sure this is part of your schedule. Some of those things are things like fellowship. Ray of Hebrews said, don't, don't rebel against the idea of joining together with other Christians. Don't, don't put that on the back burner. Get involved with fellowship with one another and, and prayer is something, of course we all know we should be doing that and, and maybe sharing our faith is another thing or loving other people well. You never have to ask God permission to love someone. You know, God wants us all to be loving other people well and I believe as we get in the pages of the Bible we'll understand more and more. These are the things that need to make it in my schedule. And we begin to orient our schedule around the most important things first and then all the other stuff you can put in there, but make sure you get those important things. And a lot of those are revealed through the pages of the Bible. Clearly spelled out. The last question is this. In addition to examining yourself, maybe your spiritual shape and looking at the pages of the Bible, what God might have to say about it. But the third one is, are there people who can help you determine the best use of your time? Are there other people that can help you with this to say, you know, this is where I think you sh should use your time or this is what I think you should be doing? My wife Karen is good about that many times when she knows I say I want to do this thing over here, maybe it's writing or something, and she'll say, but yeah, but you're doing this thing over here. And, and you need to do this. You say this is what you want to be doing. This is, you say, is your priority. Sometimes we need other people to help us stick with what we know is the best thing for us to be doing. Other people can help us. Now, there's a little danger with this one. 
because sometimes other people want you to do their will and not God's. You know, you might have heard the expression, God has a, a will for your life or a plan for your life, but I found everyone else does too. And they all want to direct you. Now, Jesus, once again, he had such clarity about this. Because sometimes the crowds wanted to steer him away from what was the thing he needed to do at the moment. And sometimes his close friends, his disciples, tried to steer him away from the thing he was supposed to be doing. Remember how Peter said, oh, you're not going to die? Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. Jesus knew it was time to head for the cross. One of his close friends is saying, oh, that's not going to happen to you. Don't, don't go through with it. Sometimes people will have a different plan for our lives. And even Jesus' own family pushed him sometimes in different directions. For example, there was the occasion where Jesus was teaching in a, in, inside a room and all of a sudden someone sent a message to Jesus, your mother and brothers are out there. Jesus, it's, it's the only time I can think of he completely ignored him. He said, who's my mother, who's my brother, it's all you. Let's keep going. Chapter two, Genesis. They wanted to take him away because they thought he'd gone off the deep end. They thought he was crazy. And so I just recognized sometimes others will want to pull you in the direction of something that's not the best, but we all need help. We need other people helping us sometimes. And I have over the years had different ones saying, I know you think you're good at this, but actually you're not. Or this is not your thing. Or this is not how you should spend your time. And I think other people can help us. Now again, all of this matters because to the degree that we have clarity in our lives in terms of what God wants and how God has wired us, then we will begin to say yes to the right things because they line up with who God made us to be and what his will is for our lives, and we'll say no to the other things. It, it produces a real clarity, and it gives you permission then to say no because one of the issues that we all face at times is we have a hard time saying no. I like what Stephen Covey says about this, though. He said it's easier to say no when you have a greater yes. You know, Jesus, again, his greater yes was the 12 disciples. That was his greater yes. And so when he was pressed by the crowd, he said no, because this greater yes is the thing compelling me. Now, what if we had a clear sense of what it is we should be doing? A greater yes, it would give us the ability to say no. So I want to encourage you to consider just evaluating your life and asking some of the questions like what is your, what is your spiritual shape and, and maybe what is it that God has touched you with in the past that he wants you to be doing that maybe you have not yet incorporated in your schedule but you know this is the will of God. Don't be foolish but understand what the will of God is. Are there things like that and are there other people that can help you along this journey? I think it could lead us to a more purposeful life as we carry out the things for which we were designed. Now, next week, uh, we're going to have a, a baptism Sunday. If you were here for the last one, several people said it was the most touching service we've ever done. It's life stories of people changed by Jesus, and so there are going to be several, I think there are 17 people getting baptized between the two services next, next weekend. The Sunday after that, or the weekend after that, I want to pick up talking about balance by talking about something that knocks us off balance, and it's namely pain and suffering 
and trials. Those are things that sometimes knock us off balance, and so I'd like to talk about that in a couple of weeks. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the investment that you've made in our lives. Thank you that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ to be our Savior, we are adopted into your family. We are your children, and thank you. You give us your Holy Spirit to help direct us in the way that we could go. And you put us in a family, and you give us spiritual gifts and abilities, and we acknowledge that you're the one that gives us purpose in life. We want, O oh Lord, to live according to your plan, according to your will. We want our lives to make the greatest difference. We want to get better about saying yes to the right things and also no to the right things. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.